are listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. Getting into tonight, it's important for us to understand the context of 2 Corinthians. Now, I mentioned, I remember uh, a while back, I, I, I spent a lot of time going over what all was going on uh, for, in Paul's ministry to the Corinthians and, and his writing and his letters to them. Uh, but it's going to be very important that we understand that so that we can know where we're headed tonight. So uh, how many uh, letters did Paul write to the Corinthians? Four. He wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Of those four letters, which one is 1 Corinthians? The second one. Of those four letters, which one is 2 Corinthians? The fourth one. Okay, so just so we're all on the same page, it's important for us to understand that, okay? Uh, in Paul's previous letter to the Corinthians, uh, which is actually his third letter, which we do not have, but he references it several times. Basically, Paul was writing to them uh, because there was serious sin going on in the church, and he was basically writing to them, telling them to repent, right? And he was saying that basically it was, it was a harsh letter. We don't know the exact contents of the letter, but we know there's two things. One, he was calling out false teaching that was going on. And secondly, we know that he was commanding them, uh, commanding uh, the church to repent. And because what was happening is that there's these false teachers that were coming in and they were turning the people uh, in the Corinthian church away from Paul and ultimately away from the true gospel. In the first nine chapters of, uh, the, of Second Corinthians, which is the fourth letter, the first nine chapters are basically Paul reaffirming his love for them, right? We see him reaffirming his love for them. He talks about uh, God being the God of all comfort. If you were with us during our first week through this, God was a God. God is the God of all comfort. He reminds them of the necessity for holding one another accountable within the church. Uh, he goes on to explain the ministry that he has and how it is that he goes about sharing the message of the gospel right, to a culture that is totally opposed to it. And with that comes obvious hardship, right? I mean, he talks about how he stays encouraged despite, you know, every reason to be discouraged of the things around him, right? And what is it that he, that he focuses on to stay encouraged? And he talks about how ultimately the, the, the main, the ultimate encouragement that he, that he has and that we have as Christians is what's waiting for us in eternity, right? We, we know that what is waiting for us in eternity is the ultimate joy that we have in the midst of any circumstance that we have going on right now. And because of this hope, Right? Because of this hope that we have in eternity, we have a responsibility to take the message of the gospel of how man can be made right with God, and we are t- commanded to take that message to a world that needs him so badly. But still, at the same time, we need to be set apart, right? We need to be in the world, ministering to the world, but not of the world, being set apart in our conduct, in our speech, in the way that we conduct ourselves, and that is what we talked about last week. Now, he shifts focus. First nine chapters was him writing to uh, the church in Corinth, really addressing his love for them and encouraging them. And now, the last three chapters are him addressing false teachers. It's him addressing false teachers. Right and now there's a lot of attention that is focused on these guys because what these men were doing was that they were teaching they were leading the Corinthian church away from Paul. They were leading them to be opposed to Paul and they were personally attacking Paul and his apostleship. 
right? There's a few things that, he, they, that they were doing that Paul directly addresses in these last final three chapters of 2 Corinthians. One, they say that he's not a true apostle, right? These false apostles were claiming that Paul was not a true apostle, and in so doing, they were claiming that they themselves were true apostles, right? They claimed that they had a higher knowledge of Christ, they had a higher knowledge of the gospel, and in so doing, they were basically diminishing Paul and saying, you know, he's not a true apostle, he doesn't know what he's talking about, we are. The second thing that they would, that they would accuse him of is that he was not, as, he was not a very skilled speaker, Right? They, were, they were claiming that Paul cannot possibly be a true man of God sent with a divine message because he was not an eloquent speaker. He wasn't as, as fluid in his speech as they were. Right? They elevated their skills in an attempt to discredit Paul. So they were saying, look, look how amazing we sound. Look how incredible we, we speak, incredibly we speak. And now look at Paul. Clearly, this guy doesn't know what he's doing because he can't speak like we can. And then the last thing that we know that they said is that his, that his teachings are of no value because he did not charge the Corinthians money for his teachings, right? We talked about that Paul uh, didn't have the right as an apostle to charge for his, for, for the things, to charge the church for his apostleship and his pastoring of the church, but he did not. He, he refused that right because he didn't want anything to get in between them and the gospel. And as crazy as it is to think, we need to understand that in, it's, it's a very persuasive argument in those days, Right? In ancient Greece, uh, you know, the uh, skills with argument and speaking were a hot commodity, and many teachers would charge large sums of money for people to hear them bring special knowledge. Right? And we know that Paul didn't charge them, so what they're saying is, hey, because he's not charging you money, clearly it's not that good. Right? It's kind of like, you know, so I, I've been able to go to Belgium once. Uh, so I've been to Europe one time, and it was, uh, I got to go to Belgium on a mission trip. And what I learned in Belgium is that you have to pay to use the bathrooms, right? Like, you have to pay to use a public bathroom. And what I learned also is that uh, there are some that you don't have to pay for, but there's a reason you don't have to pay for them, uh, because they is stank, all right? And the, I've learned that the, uh, the, how expensive the bathroom was directly correlates to how clean it is, okay? Uh, and basically, they're kind of doing the same thing to Paul. They're saying, look, because he doesn't charge you anything, because he brings this to you free of charge, clearly it can't be all that good. Not only did these teachers attack Paul, but they directly attacked the true gospel of Christ that Paul taught. And with this in mind, Paul directly addresses these issues and quite convincingly ends all arguments before coming to them again in person. Because basically what he's doing is, look, let me just address this now, right? He's writing to them saying, look, these false teachers, let me address them now. Because here's the deal. I'm coming to visit you soon. And you'd rather not me address it then. He says it in chapter 10. So we're skipping ahead to chapter 11, and we're really going to be focusing on this idea of false teaching. And if you know anything about me, if you spent any time hearing me teach, you know that the topic of false teaching is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. That it's something that I, I feel like comes up in every sermon. I feel like it's something that comes up in a lot of conversations that I have with people. Especially when it comes to not only high school students, right? You know, you guys are susceptible to a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of false teaching that your friends listen to, different things like that. Especially with the rise of social media, there's a lot of people that want to be teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about uh, when they're teaching. Not all of them, but there's a handful, right, that just say stuff that's not good, 
So what makes it difficult is that like you see some people, you know, like I'm going to give him a shout out, like Elijah, who does like these Bible studies and all these things that are like really good stuff. And the difficult part is like, okay, how do I know what's good and what's not? Right. But the biggest area where I see this being a huge issue is for college students. I, I don't know, like it's crazy to me if you've ever been to a college, like a college ministry Bible study, how much crap people believe. That's not true. And what you have is you have people who are no longer under the guidance of their parents, and now they're having to live their faith out by themselves. And what you're finding out is they really didn't know why they believed what they believed, and now they are, they are pushed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, whether it's true or not. And the reason that I focus so much on this is because if you notice, the New Testament focuses on false teaching extensively. It's a major theme. And awareness of false teaching is incredibly important for not only pastors, but also for every Christian. And as Christians, we need to take caution to what false teachers have done for centuries and what they are doing even to this day. Because Satan doesn't use different tactics. He just repackages the old ones. He just repackages the old ones. So what we're going to see is we're going to see specifically what Paul is talking about in these verses in 1 Corinthians 11. We're not going to talk about just the topic of false teachers. We're going to talk about what Paul is addressing here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted because I, preached the God, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am, do and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to ex undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as, as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The first thing that we're going to look at is characteristics of false teachers. Because I, I did a sermon, I think a year ago, a little over a year ago, about false teaching. And, and I felt like, you know, there's a lot of like really, you know, like a lot of like good conversations that kind of came out of that. But what I learned after that was I had a ton of people who were super paranoid of anything that they heard. Like, like somebody says Jesus and they're like, I don't know if this is good. 
Like, like, oh my goodness, like I'm out of here, right? So what I want you to do is I want you to understand what are some characteristics of false teaching, false teachers that Paul addresses here. First one I want you to see is that uh, in the, in, I want you to see something in the first verse. He goes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And why does Paul say this? Why, why does Paul feel this need? Uh, to, what does he talk about foolishness? And one, he's talking about uh, boasting. In chapter 10, he kind of wraps up towards the end to talk about how these men boast. They're boasting themselves up and how it's total foolishness. So the question is, why does he feel the need to boast, especially when he calls boasting of ourselves to be foolish? Because Paul is engaging in this boasting here because it is the boasting of these false teachers that have led so many astray in the Corinthian church. So what he is saying here is, look, they're trying to elevate themselves to try and steer you away from truth. But you know what? Just so you can understand, let me just tell you who it is that God has called me to be for you. Let me just explain to you. In in chapter 10, he actually says, he goes, look at the evidence before your eyes. Just look. See, these false teachers were accusing Paul of not being of any value because he didn't charge for his teachings, and they were boasting of themselves in order to gain influence. And most of the time, the boasting of these teachers is unwarranted. So to prove a point, Paul goes on to explain the difference between himself and these false teachers. And the first one that he noted that we need to understand is that teachers, one, one, one characteristic of false teaching is that they are teachers who boast of themselves. Notice how so, how so many people today are deceived by false teachers that seem to have an extra level of holiness about them. Like, these teachers that, they just, man, they just glow in the dark, they're so holy. You know what I'm saying? Like, man. Like, they just, they just, they got it going on. They're just talking, to, they'll, they'll talk about, it. like, I have this relationship with God where I have this, and I'm this, and you need to get to my level of holiness. That's what they kind of talk like. Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And I'm going to say some names tonight. And if it upsets you, like, I like that person. We can talk about it. We can talk about it later. Go to Chick-fil-A and we'll talk about it, okay? Listen to these quotes from I'm not going to call him a pastor because he's not, but, I'm a, uh, but his name's Todd White. Listen to these quotes. Remember what I just said. These are these actual quotes, and the reason I know these quotes is I watched videos of him saying these things, and I typed them out. Okay, so I didn't get them from a website or anything. He said, God came and gave me this blank canvas. He came and he gave me this pure heart, and I've never violated it with anything. Next quote, you can actually have the word so strong inside your heart that you never have to slip. People are like, well, that's false. That's not true. Well, you're wrong. I live with me. Next quote, for 13 years, I have been free from lust. I have never looked lustfully at a woman ever. Liar, liar, liar. He's a liar. Next quote, next quote, next quote. He said, I'm not holier than thou. Listen, listen. I'm not holier than thou. I just love Jesus 24-7. And you see this elevated view of his own holiness, and he's not alone in this, but this elevated view of the own person's holiness to the point that he is claiming that as a Christian, what he's saying here, he's saying is as a Christian, he has gotten to the point to where he doesn't struggle with sin anymore because he loves Jesus so much. That's what he is saying. But listen to what 1 John 1.8 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If someone's claiming, look, look at this level of holiness that I have. You need to get where I am. You need to watch yourself and what they say. Because they're probably not telling you the truth. And these are the same type of things that were going on with the Corinthian church, is that you had these false teachers that were elevating themselves in an effort to diminish the truth. And notice how the elevating of the teacher is incredibly dangerous, especially when the teachers are elevating themselves. And what happens is the teachers elevate themselves, and what happens is the people around them and the people who are underneath them, what they end up doing is elevating them right along with them. And it's almost got like a cultish feel. One of the greatest ways to avoid false teaching is simply by observing the teacher's character. Why? Because what's another characteristic is that they are very cunning and they are very deceptive. Verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. I'm skipping ahead to verse 13. They are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Something that's very important to know, you need to know this, that many people will die for things that are not true. But nobody will die for something that they know is not true. Why do I say that? Because you need to know that there is going to be people that you love, that you come across, that are, that are falling for false teaching. And what you need is you need a ton of grace to be able to reach that person. What they don't need is you to come over and hit them in the back of the head with a Bible and tell them that they need to get it together, idiot. That's not what they need. Want to know why? Because they don't know. They're being led astray. They need gentle instruction in hopes that God will reveal to them the errors of their beliefs and the errors of the ones that they are following. And when it comes to false teaching, especially when it claims to be Christian, I think we naturally expect it to be 100% obvious. We either think that we know our stuff well enough, like, no, like, I, I, like you know, it's going to be obvious, Right? And you need to understand that if it was obvious, no one would believe it. It wouldn't be so, it wouldn't be so deceptive if it was obvious. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to, to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. So we see some characteristics of them that Paul talks about here. I'm trying to fly through this, okay? But we see some characteristics, but then we need to see what do they do? What is it that they do? Because I can identify, okay, like, here's some bad things that they do, or like, here's like some characteristic, here's some characteristic, and we can spend all day on this, but I'm trying to stay focused to what Paul talks about here, but we need to see, what is it that they do? Verse three, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. False teaching, especially false teaching that scripture talks about, is incredibly deceptive, and it is hard to detect for many, and the reason is what they are doing. The reason it's hard to, to, to notice it is because of what they're doing. See, the word cunning here that is used is literally talking about false wisdom. Like, the word cunning and craftiness uh, is what this translates to. It literally translates to false wisdom. Because it sounds super wise and super insightful, but what they're presenting, it either doesn't make any sense, but it sounds super spiritual, but it's always unbiblical. It's a false Wisdom And what is the key factor in this false wisdom that makes it so effective? Listen to this. 
The reason it is so difficult to detect false teaching is because false teaching appeals to the flesh rather than the spirit. All of us have a sinful flesh. I'm a pastor. I have a sinful flesh. Right? And what we need to know is that false teaching appeals to our sinful flesh. It does not appeal to the Holy Spirit of God that he has placed in us if we are a believer. And what that means is that while it is not true, there is a part of you that wants it to be. There's a part of you that wants it to be. And notice that he compares the, 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 these false teachers to the cunning of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. If you read the account of the story of the fall, you will see that Satan deceived Eve by tempting her with what the flesh wants, namely to be autonomous apart from God, to be their own God. That's what people want. The words of the, of the serpent echo even today when he says, surely you will not die. See, the serpent tempted Eve by leading her to an understanding that God was simply a means to the end of having what she truly desires. And this is what so many false teachers do today. In an effort to be relevant and attractive, what they do is that they turn the message away from the glory of God and they angle it towards the comfort and the glory of man. And it's, now I say this and you're like, where do you see that? If you pay attention, pay attention. What does this do? It leads people, going to what Paul says, it leads people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice that Paul does not say that these false teachers turn people away from Christ entirely. They don't exactly renounce the name of Jesus. However, they distort the saving relationship God has with his people into being one that is an avenue for convenience. So now what you have is you don't have people who reject Christ, but you have people who are devoted to Christ for the wrong reasons. And they have a relationship with Christ that is not a saving relationship. And their, devotion, their devotion to Christ is now impure and insincere, and it is selfish in nature. And these sermons that come that, that, that reinforce this, these sermons are relatively easy to spot as you listen to them. There's a growing emphasis on you in the sermon. Growing emphasis on you. And notice this, that oftentimes when a false teacher is preaching, you are the hero of the story. You are the hero of the story. And in the story, you need to find out how God has made it possible for you to be like that person. Like, like this. look at what this person did. And here's the thing, God has made it to where you can be like that. No, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is not how we can figure out how we can be the heroes of our own story. All of scripture points to the fact that Christ is the hero of the story and we worship him. Christ is the hero of the story, not us. And the reason this is effective is because every person alive desires to be the best version of themselves that they can be. Even I do. And that's not a sinful desire, but when we make it our ultimate aim, especially in the church, that is extremely dangerous, and it is oftentimes sinful. It's a basic desire of mankind to reach their fullest potential. And the problem is that this type of preaching does not free people. What it does is it, bring, it does not bring joy and comfort, knowing that Christ is sufficient in all things. What it does is it burdens people, knowing it burdens people with stories of how they have what they need to overcome battles in their life, not pointing them to the fact that they have victory over these battles because of what Christ has done on the cross. 
And what you have is you have a bunch of people who are burdened of, I need to live up to this expectation, but they, have, they walk away with this false happiness because they're the ones who's going to get them there. You need to know this. I've said this so many times, and if this is your first time, well, you're going to hear it for the first time. Well, hopefully not the first time. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about you. The Bible is about Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. I'll give you another example. If the Todd White one didn't upset anybody, this one might. In the sermon by Stephen Furtick, who's the pastor of Elevation Church, he had a sermon called The Lazarus Factor. Actually, it was actually pretty recent. And the theme of the sermon, of the sermon if you don't know the story of Lazarus, is, is basically Jesus is with his disciples, and uh, people come to, uh, Mary and Martha come, and basically they're like, hey, like, the one that you love is, de- is sick, and, and he's like, all right, I'll be there in a second, but he waits four more days, or he waits like two more days, and he gets there, and basically by the time he gets there, uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Long little story short, what he does is he goes, and he's like, Lazarus, come out, and he shows this amazing ability that the Son of God has the power over death. That Christ raises what is dead, namely us. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we are hopeless. This points to the saving nature of Jesus. But what was the sermon about? The theme of the sermon is that God can resurrect the things in your life that are dead. That just as Jesus called out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, Jesus does the same thing to your life, calling forth the things that you thought were once dead. And he uses the point that Martha, right, like Martha tried to hide the stench of the dead body by not rolling away the stone. He says, move away the stone. She's like, oh, he's stinking there. And, and, he, and, and, she, he, and, and he basically says, like, you know, that was Martha trying to hide the things that she's embarrassed about. And what we need to do is we need to roll the stone away to reveal the things in our lives that we don't necessarily like so that Christ can go and do what he needs to do. That you need to move the stone that covers the things that you're embarrassed about and let Jesus resurrect your dead dreams. Here's from some notes from the sermon. These are quotes from his sermon. Basically, we all have a Lazarus in our life. Areas where we have been disappointed and need Jesus to come through for us and resurrect the dead things in our lives. Another quote. Sometimes, this is the one that really gets me. Sometimes God's love is not proven by what he does, but, but why he chooses not to do. But if you read Romans 5.8, it says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he shows his love for you. If you want to know how much Jesus loves you, the cross. Not your dead dreams. Not your dead dreams. It's the cross. And I wouldn't be so irritated if there were verses that literally says, this is how God shows his love for you. The problem is that the story of Lazarus points us to the fact that Jesus has the power over sin and over death. That's the point of the story. We have to remember that the Bible is meant to reveal to us who our God is. It's not a book of allegorical stories where we weave our own life situations into the story. This self-centered way of reading the Bible distorts a pure relationship with Christ to one that is all about me. All about me. It's a narcissistic way of reading the Bible, but we love it. We love it. In all of these types of sermons, you are always David trying to slay the Goliath that's in your life. You're never the scared Israelites shaking in fear. 
You're David. You got to slay your Goliath. No, Jesus is David, and he defeated the Goliath of sin and death. Goliath is not an allegory for your life problems. In these stories, you're, you're always Peter, and the amount of faith that you have determines whether or not you walk on the water. No. See, Paul understood the dangers of a person who follows Jesus for the wrong reasons, and he desired to desperately save the Corinthians from this. They don't point people away from Jesus. They point people to a selfish motivation to chase after Jesus. And what you have is people who think that they are Christians, and they're not. Because their relationship with Jesus is all about their, their themselves. So we see some characteristics of false teachers. We see what they do, but now let's look at how they do it. Now that Paul has warned about the cunning, deceptive nature of false teachers in the Corinthian church, remember, these are not people that are just made up. These are real people that existed then, they've existed in the past, and they exist today. He goes on to explain the number one way that you see how they do this. And I want to encourage you, if you want to know how can I know whether something is false teaching, when you listen to it, look for these three things. I'm going to give you practical stuff. These three things. Verse four. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if they receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted. These are the three things. How do they talk about Jesus? How do they talk about the Holy Spirit? And how do they explain the gospel? That is what you need to pay attention to. Because those are things that if you change one of them, you change everything. How do they talk about Jesus? How do they talk about the Holy Spirit? How do they talk about the gospel? And I'll tell you what, all false religions can be boiled down to errors with one of these three things. All of them. All of them. All of them. All of them. Now, I mean, you may be asking yourself, how do they talk about a different Jesus and people not catch on to it? Oftentimes, they do this under the guise of new revelation outside of Scripture. God told me. God told me. Now, here's the thing. I believe that God speaks, but God speaks through his word, and he will never tell you something that is not already in the Bible. God's not going to tell you something that doesn't line up with the Bible. Perfect example is when people say, like, God told me to go blow up that abortion clinic. No, he did not. No, he did not. Is abortion a sin? Absolutely it is, but God would never tell you to do that. They have a secret understanding that you don't have. They got a special connection. They, like, they, they glow in the dark, they're so holy, son. This is what was going on in Corinth. The teachers saying that they had a deeper understanding than Paul that is outside of the Bible, and that is why it isn't in there. Don't worry looking in your Bible. You're not going to find what I'm talking about, but the Holy Spirit told me this. And for the sake of time, we're not going to dive into how into excuse me, every possible false teaching. However, we are going to look at some teachings that claim to be Christians when they really aren't. And we will look at how they go wrong in at least one of these three areas. And we're just going to hit a few, and then we're going to be done, and we're going to go to our groups. First one, we're going to talk about how do people talk about Jesus. Okay, issues with understanding the person of Jesus, what they lead to. In 1820, a man, named, uh, a man by the name of Joseph Smith, <laughs> I saw that coming. 
A man by the name of Joseph Smith claimed that Jesus appeared to him and told him that all churches were wrong. And it was not long after that that the Mormon church was born. Not going to dive into it. Mormons are not Christians. Mormons are not Christians. Fast forward to the 1830s and the 1840s, we have the Millerite movement. It's uh, started by a man named William Miller, and he was convinced that Jesus was going to return during his lifetime. He was convinced of this, and he had convinced others that Jesus will return in their, in their lifetime as well. And when his, while, when his predictions did not end up coming to pass, shocker, a man named Hiram Edson claimed to have seen a vision in which he was told that Miller wasn't, he claimed that he received a vision from God, Jesus speaking to him. He received a vision that, that, that uh, Miller wasn't necessarily wrong about the time, but he was wrong about the place of Jesus' return. He claimed that Jesus actually returned spiritually, not physically. And the idea gained steam when two other people, Joseph Bates and James Ellen White, ran with the idea that Jesus had already returned spiritually, and that is where you get the birth of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Then in 1869, man, the 1800s were a heck of a time for heresy. All right, 1869, a man named Charles Russell claimed to have a special revelation from God that led to the birth of Jehovah's Witness. Notice that all of these special revelations of Jesus led to three of the most major Christian heresies known today, or quote-unquote Christian heresies. Don't stop there. Let's look at today. Let's look at today, right? I mean, it happens today. Let's look at Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel. You know the church that writes most of the worship music that you love to sing. This is a book. He's talking about Jesus. This is in his book. In his book, talking about Jesus, Jesus, he says, he performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. Okay, you understand that saying Jesus is not God is a problem. It's a problem. It's a major problem. Bill Johnson, he's, and he's got a ton of them. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on him. Let's go to Stephen Furtick, Elevation Church. He, they write the other half of the worship music we sing. This is what he said in a sermon, and this is on video. He says, the power of God was in Jesus. The healing power of God, the restoring power of God, the same power that made demons flee was in Nazareth, but Jesus could not release it because it was trapped in their unbelief. There is one thing that even Jesus can't do, one thing that the Son of God cannot do. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. And that sounds really nice, but if that's true, how are you saved? How are you saved? John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know how you're saved? Because Jesus overrid your unbelief. See, just because it sounds wonderful and it may rhyme doesn't mean it's biblical. And I could go on and on about how the image of Christ has been marred and spit upon by so many people in quote-unquote churches in an effort to push demonic teachings that lead people away from a true relationship with Jesus. Why Why are these misrepresentations of Jesus? 
because they claim that Jesus told them something that goes totally against everything that Jesus taught while he was on the earth. And here's the thing, is that Jesus is not going to say something in the New Testament that contradicts the Old Testament. Want to know why? Because he's God. And if God says something in the Old Testament, guess what? Jesus is going to reaffirm that in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. See what scripture says, that there's one way that you are made right with God and that is Jesus. And if you change Jesus to be anyone other than who he actually is, you now have no hope of salvation. If they teach a different Jesus, they teach a different religion. You cannot be saved by a Jesus that does not exist. Misrepresenting Jesus, now let's talk about the Holy Spirit. This won't take as long. Most, misrepre- most misrepresentations of the Holy Spirit are difficult to detect for a lot of people, especially, I'm just being honest, especially in conservative churches, because the Holy Spirit is probably the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. Ask yourself this. Do you know who the Holy Spirit is and what he does? Right? Because here's the thing. So, so many people talk about the Holy Spirit, but we don't know. Ligonier uh, does a state of theology survey uh, every two years. And what they found was that I think it was about 60% or so of Christians, Christians, people who claim to be Christians in the United States, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not, an act, and not a person. Which is not true. He is a person. He is a part of the Trinity. How do people misrepresent the Holy Spirit? You see this a lot in many, not all, not all, many charismatic churches misrepresent the Holy Spirit in many ways. But if you do not know the Holy Spirit and who he is and how he works, then you don't know that what they're teaching you is they're teaching you about a different Holy Spirit. Here's what you need to know. People shaking and convulsing is not the Holy Spirit. He does not do that. He has never done that in the Bible, and he does not do that. You know what you do see? When it is spiritual and people are shaking and convulsing and foaming at the mouth and laughing hysterically, you know what that is in the Bible? Demons. Not the Holy Spirit. Elevating the Holy Spirit over the Bible is another thing that they like to do. I know people personally that do this. Let's go back to Bill Johnson. He's a fun guy. And I'm not trying, here's the thing, I'm not trying to ridicule people. I'm not trying to come across arrogant. I'm not trying to come across critical. These are people that we need to pray for. Here's the thing, is that most of your friends follow these people. This is dangerous. It's dangerous. Bill Johnson. This is in his book. Those who feel safe because of their intellectual grasp and understanding of Scripture enjoy a false sense of security. Listen to that. None of us have a full grasp of Scripture, but we can all, but we all have the Holy Spirit. He is our common denominator who will always lead us into truth. But to follow him, we must be willing to follow off the map, to go beyond what we know. And basically what he's saying is be ready for the Holy Spirit to take you outside of the Bible, which he will not do. How do I know that? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. 
The Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. He would never say something that contradicts with himself. And if he does, then that means that he has changed, and that means that God is not unchanging, which means that uh, Malachi 3.6 saying that I, the Lord, do not change, and, and Hebrews 13.8 saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever are both lies. God will not contradict himself. See, the misrepresentation of Jesus, misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit, and this is the last part, misrepresentation of the gospel. There's a lot of petty ways that people do this. Well, I'm going to focus on one. And you need to know that what I'm about to say maybe makes some of you upset, but you need to know that there are people in my life that are a part of this. I love them dearly. Here's the thing. I believe that there are people a part of this that truly have a relationship with Jesus, but it's going to be because they don't believe what this organization teaches. The Catholic Church does not teach a true gospel. Why? This is what the Catholic Church teaches, that you are saved by faith and your works, that you have to be baptized to be saved. And if that is true, then how is it that when Jesus is on the cross and the thief on his side says, remember me when you enter your kingdom, and Jesus looks over at him and he says, I tell you the truth, truly, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. What, did they take the guy off the cross and baptize him? No, he died without being baptized, but he was saved because of his faith. He was saved because of his faith. He was not baptized. And then people say, well, that was a special case. No, 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 no. You said you can't be saved unless you're baptized. Right? But nowhere in the Bible does it say this. People would point to John 3, where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And he says, you know, hey, you know, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, say what? How do you do that? How can you be born a second time? That doesn't make sense. Jesus says, you must be born of water and of spirit. And people are like, there it is. There's the baptism. But Jesus is not talking about baptism there. He's talking about physical birth, like when a woman's water breaks, being born of water. And born of spirit is being saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the Catholic Church believes that you must be baptized. You must take communion. I'll go back to the thief on the cross. They didn't take him out. Oh, he professed faith in Jesus. Well, let me, let's take him down for a second. Give the man the Eucharist, right? Got to do what we got to do. And here's the thing. Ephesians 2. Bear with me as I flip to it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible is clear. We are saved by grace. By grace. Not by your works. By grace. Scripture says that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. We're saved by grace. The Reformation. We celebrate that on Halloween. Happy Reformation Day, right? The day that Martin Luther split from the Catholic Church and because of the false teachings. And in response to the Reformation, the Catholic Church had something called the Council of Trent. I'm not going to get super into this. But through that, there is, and you can go look it up in the Council of Trent. This is what the Catholic Church believes. In there, it says that if any man claims that he is saved by grace alone, let him be damned. That's what it says. 
You explain to me how that works with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says you are saved by grace alone. It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, again, I'm trying to tell you, there are people who are part of the Catholic Church that I truly believe are saved, and they have a relationship with Jesus, but it's because they don't, it's, it's, it's not because of the Catholic Church. In fact, it's probably in spite of it. And there's tons of other ways that the gospel is misrepresented, but you need to understand that what makes our relationship with Christ so amazing is that we could never earn it. Jesus is so much more magnificent than these false representations of him. The Holy Spirit is so incredible that we don't have to look at these false manifestations so we can understand him and appreciate him. And the gospel is so astounding that you don't have to add anything to it. We are saved because Jesus took the punishment of our sins upon himself. Here's the question. How do I avoid false teaching? I'll tell you, the best way to avoid false teaching is to know the truth. Know the truth. If you ever work at a place and there's like a, you're at the cash register and they teach you uh, how to identify like a false dollar bill, right? Like a, a, like a phony dollar bill. What do they do? They tell you, these are the things that are on a real dollar bill and you need to look for these things and if it's not there, it's not a real dollar bill. It's the same way with Christ. It's the same way with the gospel. There are things that if it's not there, you compare it to what you know is the truth, and if it doesn't line up, it's out. Here's the thing. You need to know that what Paul is talking about here, and what I'm talking about tonight, I am not talking about people who teach and they make a mistake. There's been things that I have said before that, aren't, that weren't right. doesn't mean I'm a false teacher. It just means that I made a mistake. I'm talking about people who deliberately teach things that are false. And you would be shocked. Okay? We need to have grace, but at the same time, we cannot just be deceived by everyone that throws out the name Jesus. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students.